Right, well, welcome to this episode of Nessun Dorma. This week, we're looking at the career of Graham Taylor, a much beloved figure now as we look back, but it wasn't always so. And we're going to explore how he became that loved figure, how he uh, then became rather less, certainly in the press, and then how he uh, became something of a doyen then of uh, football management and punditry. And I'm delighted to say uh, that we're joined uh, by um, two excellent contributors. Uh, so I'm going to hand over first to Lionel. Hello. Um, thanks very much for inviting me onto the podcast. Uh, my name is Lionel Burney. And, well, through uh, quite a long process, I ended up being Graham Taylor's ghostwriter for his autobiography, which um, was finished posthumously. Um, we were still working on it when he passed away in January 2017, but we had spent um, three years meeting up very regularly and uh, reviewing and going over and unpicking his career. We didn't quite get to the very finish of uh, that process, but um, it was with his family's wishes that I completed the book after he had died, and it came out in November 2017. Um, I'm not a football journalist, predominantly, although I have written uh, several football books about the club that I support, Watford, which probably explains the, the Graham Taylor link. I'm actually a cycling journalist, and my day job, if you like, is covering uh, the Tour de France and the other big races. So, um, you know, I will defer to others on the kind of the, the, the history and coverage of, uh, of football from the, the 70s to, well, the period we're going to cover, I guess, will go up to uh, the, the late 90s. Um, but uh, Graham Taylor's career and life, I think I do know better than most, I guess. Well, uh, that's splendid. And we'll hope this is uh, this journey that we're, we're going to take over the next hour or so is not exactly a tourmalet in both senses of the word. Um, so uh, our, our second guest, I'm delighted to say, is uh, Nesson Dorma uh, regular, uh, Mike. Uh, yep. Yeah. Hi, Gary. Uh, good to be back. Uh, if, if anyone on here uh, doesn't know me, I'm Mike Gibbons. Uh Yep, regular on Ness and Dormer, and uh, written a couple of books, uh, one with the great Rob Smythe, and uh, yeah, looking forward to talking about Graham Taylor and his England reign, and uh, so that was, uh, you know, immediately post-Italia 90, up until uh, the end of 1993, so when I was about uh, 12 to 15, and probably sort of in the sweet spot of when I was following England with yeah, a serious interest. I mean, it's, that's that's withered away an awful lot now. But um, yeah, really looking forward to going over this. Uh, so I'm delighted to have uh, these two gentlemen along with me because during that period, I think I was in the pub. Uh, so uh, <laughs> I'll need your, your expertise. So we'll, we'll and I am, uh, of course, Gary Naylor 999, the Gobby Scouser, uh, mouth of the Mersey. Uh, so we'll begin, really, Lionel, with a little bit of background on, on Graham Taylor. Um, he, a quick skim over his uh, club career, uh, dare I say that to a Hornets fan, um, and then uh, moving straight into his appointment as, as England manager, as, as um, Talking Heads once said, you know, my God, how did we get here? How did he get there? Well, I mean, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Because uh, Graham Taylor, up to the time that he was appointed as England manager, 
in 1990 um, had had really 15 years of unbroken success as a club manager, hadn't he? He was appointed very young. I think he was 28 when he got the job as Lincoln City manager. Uh, it took a few years to build a title-winning side, but he took them up from the fourth division as champions with a record points total as it was then in 1976. And then, of course, was recruited to take over Watford by Elton John and led Watford from the fourth division all the way to the top flight where they finished runners-up behind Liverpool in 1983. They played in Europe. They reached the FA Cup final. And um, he established Watford really as a top division club. And then after 10 years at Vicarage Road, went to Aston Villa, who had just been relegated to Division 2. And he steered them back to the first division at the first attempt and took them uh, after a brief brush with uh, the danger of relegation he took them also to runners up behind Liverpool in the top flight and had he not been um, recruited to take the top job the England job he would have um, you know he would have led Aston Villa into European competition the following year um, but he was uh, one of a number of people interviewed for the job, or certainly on the on the list of uh, people who were in contention to take the job. But when you reflect and say, well, how how did we end up with Graham Taylor? Um, you know, if we look back from sort of November 1993, when it all ended very unhappily, and say, well, why on earth did this happen? And who were the other candidates in, in summer 1990 to take over from Bobby Robson? They were Terry Venables at Tottenham. Um, but of course, he you know had uh, the odd skeleton in the cupboard, if we can put it that way. There was Howard Kendall, uh, Brian Clough, um, you know, perhaps not figures that would have been as, let's say, conformist for the FA. And Joe Royal, who I think was still at Oldham at the time. Um, and, you know, that would have been an even uh, more of a surprise appointment. I don't think there was much of a sense, certainly from looking at the contemporary newspapers, um, that this was a real left field, um, out of the blue appointment. Graham Taylor was considered to be an excellent club manager. And I'm sure we'll talk about it and his style of football. I'm, there was there was plenty of scepticism about whether uh, Graham Taylor's style of football was going to be suited to international football. But I don't think anyone could really argue with his record. It had been unbroken success, as I say. Mike? Uh, yeah, I completely agree with that. Uh, obviously, what what he did with uh, Watford was amazing. And then he, you know, he, he took Aston Villa... Um, you know, a, a big club who had uh, won the European Cup in 1982, but then got relegated five years later and were were just tanking. And he he turned that whole club around, um, got them promoted, and then 89-90, which is obviously the season before Italia 90, uh, got them to finish uh, second in the league, and they, they were right in the title race with Liverpool uh, right up until. Uh, three games to go. So, yeah, as Lionel said, his record on paper. I mean, it's that's an incredibly strong um, CV uh, to put in for the England job. And uh, Lionel mentioned some of the other candidates as well. I think Brian Clough was just past the peak of his uh, you know, incredible mercurial powers at that point. Uh, Venables, uh, Lionel rightly makes the point, is... Um, Comes with a certain amount of baggage, and uh, you know, had it had even more uh, three years later when he did uh, actually get the job. Joe Royal, it was seen as a bit too early for him because he'd had that one amazing season with Oldham, but it, you know he, he was uh, a lower division manager. So it's uh, yeah, I don't think it was um, a great su- surprise that they went for Taylor. It wasn't like he was plucked from 
obscurity and it was a real um, shocking appointment. He was definitely one of the best candidates for the job. I mean, my memory of it is slightly different. Um, there were three, I think, elements that that were not exactly being shouted from the rooftops, but nevertheless uh, were, were certainly in play. Uh, the first one is that while his career was successful, it hadn't yielded any trophies, and England had come quite close. This is what I always say. They came, they came quite close in '86. They got beaten by the best footballer who's ever kicked the ball, and uh, even he needed the hand of God to help him to do it. And in you know 1990, we we lost on penalties to the eventual winners. You know in the in the semi final. So um, I think some of us were were looking at that, and there was some rumblings in the press that we were picking someone who had a solid record but not a winning record. Um, I think the other element that was in play is that we were we were picking someone who had built his career, even if he hadn't rested on on the laurels of it, from very much the kind of playbook of of Charles Hughes, you know, with uh, the ball being shifted forward early and getting the ball into the pomo, the position of maximum opportunity, uh, shoving it in the mixer, as it was later said by uh, by Wimbledon in particular. But that was certainly a, a kind of lingering doubt that that was there, albeit as I say, not it, it didn't stick too much given the football that he played later. Um, and then it was the the thing that perhaps was closest to some of our hearts was that England, in, instead of of going with a bastard, uh, as Manchester United had done, and as uh, as. Alf Ramsey had been in many ways at England, and and you know Brian Clough had been in, in lots of ways. We were going with another kind of Ron Greenwood, Bobby Robson sort of avuncular figure who who worked well with the press, had a good sense of humour. The players clearly liked him, and so on. But you know whether whether we needed someone who was a who was a an uncle rather than a tyrant was was I think in question. Um, having said all of that, you know the the alternatives were not uh, lined up like uh, the Miss World contestants waiting to be pulled forward uh, to be crowned. Uh, they were they were not uh, hugely impressive, and all had some question marks against them. So, uh, not for the first time, and not for the last time, I think England were, were left with candidates for whom one could make a case. Uh, but not an inarguable case, and the best case was certainly Graham Taylor. So he's he's there. Um, so we 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 move to the start of his his uh, England career, and um, he gets off to to a pretty good start, doesn't he, Lionel? Yeah, I mean, he didn't lose a match as England manager for the first year. I think the first defeat was against Germany uh, around about a year after he taken charge I mean it was steady it was it wasn't spectacular was it but he was inheriting Bobby Robson's side who had reached the obviously the semi-finals of the World Cup in Italy lost to Germany on penalties um, but let's not kind of rewrite history and kid ourselves that, that this was uh, you know this was champagne football from from England um, throughout the tournament I mean they were they were pretty 
terrible in the group stage. They, you know, it wasn't the the games against Ireland were never great. Um, the, the the match against the Netherlands was uh, you could argue that England had the better of it, but but didn't win. And then it required a set piece in the match against Egypt to ensure that they got through the group. And then uh, last minute of extra time, of course, from the famous commentary line, um, David Platt knocked out Belgium in the second round and then needed a bit of luck and a couple of penalties against Cameroon, who were undoubtedly a, a, a very exciting uh, and perhaps surprising side. Um, but it wasn't convincing stuff in the quarterfinals. The best performance was the semi-final against Germany and, of course, lost it on penalties. Um, and Graham Taylor was inheriting what was seen as a, a very successful side. Um, but a couple of kind of experienced retirement. I'm not I'm not saying that, you know, Graham Taylor's tenure would have been any better had Peter Shilton and Terry Butcher not retired from uh, international football, but you know, it it was a it was a squad that uh, had elements of it that that were going to need to be replaced if not over the first um qualifying campaign then certainly over the second. Um and so he he was coming in from a from a high level of expectation and I think the you know, you have to look back as well at the, the, the way the qualifying tournaments were in those days. The, the, the qualifying tournament for Euro 92, only eight teams would make the finals, of course, and a very, very tight group stage with Poland and uh, the Republic of Ireland. You know, not a lot of room to kind of throw caution to the wind and, and, and you know, really, uh, you know, uh, play with sort of a great sense of abandon. It was about getting points and, and qualifying from the group and ensuring that they were in the finals in 92. And and I think that they did a decent job of that. I mean, it wasn't pretty at times, as, as I'm, I'm sure we'll, uh, we'll unpick, but um, they were an England team that, um, you know, that got the results that were, were required. And, and unlike the World Cup campaign, that was to follow there wasn't really a terrible sense that that uh, England's qualifi- qualification for Euro 92 was really in a great deal of jeopardy I don't think No Mike any views on the qualification tournament for Euro 92 Yeah uh, I think that's a good point about um, the team uh, that Graham Taylor inherited I mean it, it, yes it was a team that had had a very good result at Italia 90 getting to the semi-finals, but it was a team also that was in transition. Uh, as Lionel says, Terry Butcher and Peter Shilton retired. I think Butcher had been in the England team for 10 years. Uh, Shilton in or around the team for 20 years. Uh, they're, and they're two huge uh, figures to lose, I think. Uh, Chris Waddle, I think, was 30 by this point. Gary Lineker who was almost 30. I think he's only 29 uh, very soon to be thirty. Um, so you had you had uh, that kind of level of experience, but you know players that w- were clearly going to have to be eventually phased out at, at some point. But he'd also inherited, you know, Paul Gascoigne, who'd had the amazing tournament. David Platt, uh, slightly lost in the shadow of Gascoigne at Italia ninety, but uh, I-, I think an equally important uh, contribution to that tournament. And obviously Taylor had managed Platt at club level and had got the best out of him to the point where he he had that great season with Aston Villa in 89-90 and got into the England squad and had that tournament that changed his life. So that's what that's what Taylor inherited. And it's because England had had, had this um this run at Italia 90 and yeah, let's not kid ourselves. It was it was a bit of a surprise that they got a very pleasant surprise that 
they got as far as they did. I think it um, it's hindered Taylor in a little bit in you know how quickly do you start to undo that and impose your own ideas. And I think that was a bit of a a battle for him early on. If you I mean if you look at the team lineups for the first uh, the first few games he had, I mean it's, it's not much of a, a, a variance from what uh, Robson had done at Italia ninety. Um, but I mean, by the fact that Shilton and Butcher weren't there, so it, um, yeah, it, it took him a little while um, before he could impose his own ideas on it. I think the first real uh, match in which he did that was that England played away to the Republic of Ireland in the qualifiers for Euro '92, and it was uh, in I think in the November of 1919. At this point, Gazamania is raging, you know, across England. He's probably the most famous person in the country and it was I think I think there were signs that it was starting to to maybe get to Gaza and affect him a little bit and uh Graham Taylor dropped uh Gascoigne for that game it was just an absolute sensation at the time and played uh Gordon Cowens instead who'd um who'd been his uh, you know his kind of midfield linchpin uh alongside Platt and Aston Villa um, and he he took Gascoigne out of that game for fear of uh, what what the pressure of the occasion might do to him, and that that um, maybe the Irish players would go out to to wind him up. And it's uh, I think it, I mean, I'll come back to this at points through the pod, but I, I think the way Taylor tried to handle Gascoigne was that's actually really interesting, and and something I I don't think Taylor gets enough credit for is that how how wise he was to what was going on in the background with um, Paul Gascoigne. And he, he actually made um, efforts to address that, I think. And it's it's uh, six months on from this, uh, the FA Cup final uh, between Tottenham and Nottingham Forest, where the pressure of everything finally got to Gascoigne. Um, and he had that wild first 10 minutes where he committed those two very bad fouls. The second one on Gary Charles, which did his knee in, and he he was never really the same after that. But that that had been, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, if you look back now, that had been coming. And I think I think Taylor was actually wise to that, you know, six months before it actually happened. I think that's very yeah. I'd I'd, very I'd just like to just jump in there on on uh, sure. on on Gascoigne and Platt because you would look at that and say, well, they they are two midfield players of um, you know great in attacking intent. I mean, Platt was excellent playing sort of just behind strikers and and bursting in from late. Gascoigne could sit a bit deeper, but also roam left and right and and really pull the strings. I mean, two wonderfully talented players. Just on Platt, I mean, Graham Taylor um, did, didn't just sign him for Aston Villa from crew he you know he actively you know scouted him spotted him went went to Gresty Road and stood anonymously on the terraces to watch him a number of times before uh, making his move and, and, and sensing a few other clubs interestingly Watford were one of them and Everton I think were another were sniffing around he kind of you know he spent Doug Ellis's money for him and and took uh, took uh, David Platt to Villa Park um, Gascoigne, a, a mercurial talent, a, a brilliant talent, a genius in many ways. But as Graham um, said in our interviews, we talked a lot about Paul Gascoigne and, and the vulnerability that he noticed in him from right from the start and the, the difficulty to get him to focus on things, even in a football sense, for, for any length of time. I mean, I, I don't want to be a sort of cod psychologist here, but sort of 
um, you know, difficulties concentrating and, and, and taking on instruction and, and, and following things through, um, you know, that was that was a kind of common theme of, of working with Paul Gascoigne. You'd never quite know what he would be doing next, where he would be. The players would have to, you know, maybe they'd be given a couple of hours to rest in their room and, and uh, you know, Gascoigne would be out playing tennis and the hotel tennis court or whatever you know I mean these, these kind of anecdotes are a ten a penny but Graham did tell me that the, the when he took the job and he went round every first division club and uh, went to their training grounds to introduce himself to um, the managers who of course he would have known but you know to introduce himself as the England manager and meet the players that might be on his long list for the squad when he was at Tottenham's training ground for a meeting with uh, Lineker, Gascoigne and one or two others, um, he had sort of one-to-ones with them. And Gascoigne came into the meeting with a two-litre bottle of Coke and a huge slice of cake. And 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 Graham was very aware, uh, even from his Watford days, of the effect of you know, players being too heavy or having the wrong kind of diets. And um, yeah, I think right from the start, he was just concerned that perhaps Gascoigne wasn't getting the the sorts of guidance and protection that that a personality of his type would need. And that particularly um, became the case when Gascoigne went to Lazio and and moved to Rome. Graham went out probably every five or six weeks to go and meet him, even during the period when, um, you know, he was still recovering from his injury. Uh, sustained in the FA Cup final, and and he was trying to establish some kind of connection between uh, himself and a player he felt he could build an England team around, but just never quite managed to do it. And and he did say in the process of, of the interviews for for the book, you know, that was one of the biggest regrets of his career was that despite a number of different techniques, trying to operate on a different level. Um, each time with Gascoigne to see whether something would work, see whether he could make a, a breakthrough and a connection. He, he never quite managed it. And as a result, um, you know, his impact in the team was was limited. Um, and obviously, you know, after the injury in May 91, he was missing for you know, the Euros in, in 92 and, uh, you know, didn't really come back until the World Cup qualification campaign was was already beginning to uh, go off the off the tracks a little bit so uh, probably the the biggest regret of Graham Taylor's England career is that he didn't have a fully fit fully focused Paul Gascoigne um, to choose from and and that Ireland game you're absolutely right Mike I mean he did uh, Graham Taylor did get a kind of tip off from somebody in the Ireland camp I mean it won't take a genius to work out who it was um, you know it was it was a friendly word from from Paul McGrath or, or was it was it perhaps a sort of mischievous word you know tipping mm-hmm. off the opposition manager that uh, Gascoigne would be in for a rough ride and a, and a rough afternoon um, on the Lansdowne Park pitch I mean it was um, you know it was it was a Big, big decision that to leave Paul Gascoigne on the bench and not bring him on in the game either. Um, and by picking Gordon Cowens, who had you know seen as a safe pair of hands, I guess, and, and someone that Taylor knew from his Aston Villa time, probably you know all of the all of the ingredients there, uh, they are they are there, aren't they? To to uh, point the finger at Graham Taylor and say that you, you made a big decision and the wrong decision but they did get out of Dublin with a with a mm. point they didn't play very well but it was an absolute dog of a football match that I mean the, those games between England and Ireland at that, at that time starting with the one at the Euros in 88 they weren't they weren't pretty were they and again I suppose it's uh, it's easy to say now but uh, that, that was that was job done go to Dublin get mm. your point 
come home and uh, keep the qualification campaign on track. Yeah, I've just got two reflections to add, really, is that I think we all knew at the time that that England were not maximising the potential of Paul Gascoigne. But what the passage of 30 years has done has made us reflect as we learn more and we understand more and there's a much more holistic understanding of, of what a footballer is, that even if Graham Taylor wasn't getting the potential out of Paul Gascoigne, maybe he was getting the most out of Paul Gascoigne. And you know, with almost with every everything you read or you learn about Gascoigne, you look back on that and as you've said, uh, as Mike said really, it was probably a wise decision to leave him out for all the outrage and the easy headlines that it that it caused and um, you know, maybe that more kind of sympathetic come forceful hand uh, may have done uh, Gazza a bit more more good across his career but we can we can never know I mean the personality is the personality and uh, you have to work with it but maybe Taylor was working with it in the best way that he could um, and certainly the passage of time has, has strengthened that case. The other thing I would say is that um, we're in the, the kind of period around the isolation of English club football uh, out of the European in uh, European tournaments in the post-Hasel ban and so it was much harder to to kind of identify who were the players of international class alongside the the inevitable fact um, it's an easy again it's an easy kind of trope but it, it was I think true is that we were inverted commas falling behind uh, the Europeans in playing the game and I was struck by the uh, statistic that Taylor used 59 players um, in the run-up to Euro 92 in, in terms of trying to find the players who were and were not of international class and I I remember uh, David David Platt playing for for Villa and I think he put four past Everton. Uh, it was either three or four in a kind of six two I think win for Villa in that season where Taylor took them to second place, and I mean that was an eye opener there because you know David Platt looked like a you know a handy player. He looked like one who was on the up, but you didn't see him as that that kind of uh, player who was going to go on and become. You know, I think at one point it was he the most expensive transfer in the world. At one point, he was certainly, I think, the most expensive transfer uh, between an England <coughs> and, a, and an Italian club when he when he <coughs> uh, went to Bari. I think was it for five and a half million or yeah. so there, thereabouts. So it was quite hard for Taylor <coughs> to 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 get a a kind of rule over which to run these players. Um, and as you say, you know, he he lost uh, Shilton. Uh, Terry Butcher and I think Brian Robson as well so um, you know no manager takes over a side where it's just to join the dots and you know as you were lads uh, you know carry on Um, but it it was a tough hand to play and you know I think that the that we see the start of of Taylor's fractious approach uh, with the media or should I say the media's fractious approach with him which became a real kind of leitmotif of his England career and We'll get on to the famous documentary in an impossible job, but it's just extraordinary to see, you know, how much um, attention the England manager uh, play pays to these uh, hacks who are sort of writing up their uh, their reports. Um, but we'll move we'll move to the tournament proper, and I think you've already indicated that um, 
England were drawn, and it just shows how tough these European Championship final mm-hmm. uh, finals were. Draw, drawn in a group with France, Denmark, and the host Sweden. Uh, so, Lionel, talk us through uh, the uh, the Euro '92 finals. Well, Denmark, of course, hadn't actually qualified, had they? Yugoslavia had qualified, but because of the uh, the political situation and the and the and the, and the war that. Uh, that was brewing, um, Denmark came in and, and replaced them. So they were something of an unknown quantity. I mean, not not really, but I mean, they England hadn't been expecting to face them until relatively short notice. Um, just on the kind of the, the the years build up to the to the Euro '92 tournament itself, I, I know that the the tour the summer before to New Zealand and, and Malaysia and Australia um, to celebrate predominantly the, the centenary of the New Zealand FA. Uh, I know, well, Graham inherited that schedule. It was already um, planned and, and uh, uh, you know, a match against Australia, two against New Zealand and then, and then one against Malaysia. It really wasn't the sort of level of, of um, opposition that he would have wanted and uh but they were committed and there was no way that 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 particular tour could be um could be changed and uh, you mentioned the figure of 59 players being used you're absolutely right i mean uh, partly that was injuries but also that tour accounts for probably a good six or eight people who um perhaps mm. you know wouldn't have got cap in 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 more usual um circumstances but the, you know things that graham taylor had inherited uh, that he couldn't change had a had a, an impact on on how he was able to kind of build towards the finals. Um, the the final two matches in the warm up to the tournament stick in the memory partly because of Gary Lineker's missed penalty against Brazil, which I think would have given put him level with Bobby Charlton's record. Um, Mike may know that. That's right. That's right. That's yeah. And and he tried the sort of uh, the cheeky Penenka type um, finish, didn't he? And it, it did. It didn't come off, and so. Uh, uh, that game against Brazil ended one-one, and think then I, I think watching it, I think I threw my head back and said, "Oh, for heaven's sake!" You know, on the the penalty of a lifetime, and he, he goes and does that. He didn't make many bad decisions, to be fair, Lineker, but that was, uh, yeah, he he bears, I think, full responsibility for not being on the top step alongside Bobby Charlton. Well, not no longer, well, of course, the top step, but it would have been then. Yeah, and then England travelled to Finland for the final friendly um, around a week before the tournament itself kicked off. And uh, John Barnard got injured after 17 minutes and and suddenly uh, the injury list was becoming more significant because uh, Lee Dixon, the regular right back, was already out. Gary Stevens, his kind of uh, obvious replacement, also got injured. It meant that there was no natural right back in the squad. John Barnes, uh, one of the more... well one of the most creative players, certainly at club level. Um, we, we could debate all day about why he didn't recreate that quite international level on, on many occasions, but still a big loss to the squad. And um, Mark Wright, who had been playing at centre-back and probably would have um, started in the, the first match against Denmark, he got injured as well and, and didn't really level up with the management about that until it was too late. So he's a, he was officially in the squad, even though they knew he had no chance of actually getting fit even if England had made it through to the semi-finals. And, and Graham kept quiet about that to protect Mark Wright. I mean, you could understand why Wright would do that. Um, not, you know, he'd want to give himself any chance of possibly playing in the tournament, getting fit in time for perhaps the knockout games. But um, Graham was extremely 
uh, irritated because it meant that effectively they went into the tournament with with 19 players instead of 20 and without a, a right back. And and I think Keith Curl had to play um, the first match at right back and and had a pretty tough time. They drew nil nil with Denmark. I mean, you know, we we can't sugar the pill here. All three games were pretty dreadful spectacles. I mean, you can you can see on YouTube a sort of section of the the France England match, and there's there's a sort of good five minute spell where neither side has got the ball under control in any shape or form. I mean, it's just bouncing around um, like a pinball. You know, you and the the team didn't have the the same cohesion that um, you know that that you require in in a tournament. And uh, you know, when you when you look at the, the you know, David Batty, obviously, you know, went on to um, play a much better part in uh, in England performances, but um, it, you know, didn't uh, pull up any trees. Uh, Carlton Palmer again, another. Another uh, decision that Graham Taylor is is always it's always levelled at him as a what on earth were you thinking moment and and Andy Stinton you know regardless of John Barnes's pedigree at international level and and the the fact that he didn't replicate his brilliant Liverpool form in an England shirt too often you know Andy Stinton was not of of the same level um, but the big big question is who were the next ones? It wasn't like Graham Taylor was picking these players ahead of anyone else who was fit and available. This was really an England squad that was pretty much down to um, the bare bones. And uh, without a bit of creativity, um, and even with a young Alan Shearer up front uh, alongside the experienced Lineker, they just didn't, they didn't really create any chances. They, they, they didn't play with any fluidity. Um, they were, they were kind of e- easy to beat at their own game as well as, as Sweden proved. Um, I suppose the, the best moment of, of the three matches really was when Stuart Pierce rattled the crossbar with a free kick against France, but really not a great deal um, to, to, to say, you know, England deserved a place in the semi-final because across the three matches, they they really didn't, did they? No, I think that's a very uh, a very fair summation. Um, I do I do remember seeing Andy Sinton scored a hat trick at uh, Loftus Road, but he didn't score them very often. So uh, when he when he popped up in the uh, the um, an impossible job film, I was thinking, who's that? Who's that? Oh, that's who it is. And there's there's a few sort of uh, moments like that when you're looking at these England players, and you're thinking, really, was he really? Um, but as you say, it was. It wasn't easy to identify the players, and that led to this kind of incoherent and somewhat messy uh, teams that were put out, and the technical ability wasn't great either. So it was a it was a difficult hand to play. Mike, any thoughts of your own on the Euro '92? Um, yeah, I think I think the squads, um, as we were saying, there is quite it's quite interesting the way it came together. I mean, obviously the the lack of Gascoigne. It's obviously a huge factor on the tournament, and also you know John Barnes not being there. I think we we do need to remember when when Taylor took the job, uh, Italian ninety had been a great success for England and a su- surprise success, but it it actually it been a bit of a disaster for John Barnes because um, he start he started the tournament. He was Player of the Year in England, you know, twenty six years old, and it was it was set up for him to be the tournament where you know, he really kind of announced himself with England and it just didn't happen and he got injured and by the end of the tournament, he was out of the side. And I think one of the factors in in Taylor getting the job, I'm sure, would have been that John Barnes, who was probably at the time 
you know, Gascoigne aside, the best player in England. Yeah, Taylor had got the best out of Barnes at club level with Watford, and I think there was a hope. And it's even in the book, yeah, you know, all played out. Uh, Pete Davis's great yeah. book about Italian ninety. There's a chapter in that called, I think it's called the Trouble with Barnes, and it's about. You know, how do we get the best out of uh, John Barnes for England? And it, and it ends on the line that because everyone knew Taylor was the incoming manager then. You know, if there's one man in England that understands uh, John Barnes, it's Graham Taylor. And uh, yeah, Taylor didn't have Barnes for this tournament. Um, and, and we mentioned the, you know, the, the other long established players that have gone. I mean, Brian Robson was another one as well. I think he, he came back for a couple of games under Taylor, but then. Um, then was discarded. I think he was 33 uh, by the time uh, Taylor started his reign. So, yeah, it's the uh, Lionel makes the point about you know Taylor was picking the best players he could, and you, you, I think you made an interesting point earlier, Gary, about the where English football was at in relation to Europe. If you look at how the English champions had done after they'd been let into the European Cup. So in the three years in a row under Taylor's reign, uh, Arsenal and then Leeds United and then Manchester United all failed to make the the group stages of what was then becoming the Champions League. So that's that's a little indicator of where you know English football was at and the strength of English football uh, compared to their rivals on the continent. So yeah, players came in, you know, John Solarco and Jeff Thomas and uh, Andy Sinton and Carlton Palmer. Um, so it, yeah, it was, it was very much trial and error. And uh, I think the point about the Australia tour is a good one because I think Arsenal and Manchester United refused to let their players go on that tour, which um, which uh, compromised obviously the squad that uh, Graham Taylor could then take. But I think that the two the two decisions he did make that are, are quite hard to reconcile was one is he phased Chris Waddle out of the England setup. This is when Waddle was playing for Marseille in France and Marseille were getting to, they got to the 1991 uh, European Cup final and uh, Chris Waddle's nickname at Marseille was Magic and he was, you know, adored by the fans there. He's part of that great team uh, with Abidi Pelé and um, uh, Jean-Pierre Papin and lots of other great players. Uh, and on top of that as well, he phased out Peter Beardsley who is a proven international player, you know, at Mexico 86 and Italia 90 for England. And it, I think it's interesting that in the very first game where Terry Venables takes over in early 1994, one of the first decisions he makes is to recall Peter Beardsley and put him straight into the team. So that those are two things that are often levelled against Taylor as well. Um, yes, he had to transition a squad with a lot of ageing players in but it, it's levelled at him that he cast aside Waddle and Beardsley uh, too early and yeah if, if you yeah, look at that I, I, sorry Lionel, sorry sorry Mike I was, I was just going to say on, on Chris Waddle I, I think I, I think you're right um, but I, I also know that um, Chris Waddle and to an extent John Barnes they kind of uh, in Graham's words looked down a little bit on on the kind of the, the rough and tumble of English football and thought that there was a, a more sophisticated version of the game to be played uh, and, and and you could argue certainly that, that uh, Marseille were, were doing that and, and Chris Waddle is absolutely revered to this day 
um, in Marseille, isn't he? And mm. but you're right. That was that was a kind of ideological decision decision of Graham's that that is difficult to to justify. I mean, Chris Waddle had, um, you know, you know, he had everything going for him in in terms of being a creative player. Uh, and and Graham Taylor, I think. Uh, made the decision that he was going to go with either Barnes or Waddle, and he and he chose Barnes, and of course that didn't work out for him. What is mystifying really is is when, uh, you know, when John Barnes wasn't available, why why not go back to Waddle? You're you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it's it's rare really for um, for for England managers to really get away with leaving out kind of such obvious talent, isn't it? And it it becomes a very easy thing to. Um, to criticise them for, and I, I think it's mm. it, it's quite difficult to sort of you know justify when somebody is is playing for a, a side that let's not forget Marseille at that time were one of the best sides in Europe, and Chris Waddle was one of the best players in that side. Yeah, I mean, I, the French league was pretty weak. Uh, I did some research on on this a, a week ago for for a different thing, and you know, not many La Ligue sides got to the the kind of final rounds of the European. Uh, tournaments. The the big exception was Marseille. I think Monaco did one year as well. But um, it was it was a pretty weak league in which Waddle was outstanding. But in a in a squad that was short of technicians and short of creativity, um, you know, to to use that line from the importance of being earnest. To lose one may be uh, unfortunate. To lose two seemed careless, with both Beardsley and Waddle being ostracised or, or left out. Um, I just want to just slightly shift focus because there's a there's another element that was to become much more important that begins to raise its head here. And, you know, if anyone thinks that sort of pouring vitriol on football managers or footballers is a is a, a new thing with the advent of social media, then they really need to look at the newspapers of the uh, of the early nineties because, you know, the amount of vitriol that was directed towards Taylor is just astonishing and it, it didn't help that the um that the journalists, certainly on the production side, had, had got the new toy of kind of Photoshop. And I think the first time we became aware of it, many of us, was the the uh, infamous or, or famous, because in terms of doing its job, it was it was fantastic, but it is absurd and cruel, which was the, the son's famous uh, Swedes 2, Turnips 1, which manages to uh, be patronising to the... Sweden and England all at the same time but it was accompanied by Graham Taylor's head sort of photoshopped into a into a turnip and and you know that was to become a, a kind of motif as I say that ran through his England uh, career but I mean you, you spoke to him uh, Lionel obviously many times in working on the book was he see did he seem still as as well obsessed is probably too strong a word but so so concerned with the reception that he got personally and that England got in the in the especially the written press not so much I think the broadcast media but the written press yeah I mean you've got to remember we're talking about an era before social media um, when the newspapers particularly the tabloids were really powerful I mean the sales figures were huge their influence was uh, significant 
and uh, you know they could make or break an England manager. And it was the one that the England manager, the England teams, the one thing that brings all of the newspapers together, isn't it? In a way, I mean, you you can have the knives out for a club manager, but the the, the focus shifts when the England manager isn't doing well. Um, you know, it really is. Uh, it's kind of a an, an old school version of the modern pylon, isn't it? And um, you make a very interesting point about the 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 fact that the the mock up of the turnip was done by somebody in the office uh, you know a combination of a sub-editor and, and graphic artist um, and uh, you know they came up with a headline I mean in a, in a sense it's it's witty isn't it, it it's you know it, it, it raises a sort of a smile in a, in a way um, but I think the the unintended uh, consequences let's be charitable here um, were significant for Graham um, who considered he had good relationships with the journalists who actually covered the matches I mean uh, he was he was on good terms with say John Sadler who wrote for the Sun and, and you know again uh, n- neither man are here to um, to verify this but Graham certainly told me that you know uh, journalists such as John Sadler and others would kind of apologize for the you know look sorry mate it's just just business you know we didn't have anything to do with that you can read what i've written but this is the headline they put on it this is this is how they've changed it in the office uh, i mean we you know journalists i mean that's a you could you could say that's a, uh that's an easy way to get yourself out of a corner if if somebody's challenging you but graham did have a dialogue with the journalists who were covering the matches and and tried to treat them as openly and fairly as he always had done um i think where the criticism uh, overstepped the mark was that the fact that perhaps not immediately but the turnip um, image kind of meant the gloves were off because the following summer when England did pretty badly in the USA tournament and were well, lost to the USA um, the coverage was uh, ramped up again and and Taylor was uh, where well, he was he was pretty much vilified i mean that that isn't too strong a word for some of the coverage that he received and where it overstepped the mark was when uh, that spilled over and people were approaching him in public um again a different era you know the the, the football managers and players of the time didn't live in you know gated communities perhaps like they do now you know he lived in a fairly ordinary place in Sutton Coldfield that was accessible the media knew where he was um when he was in America on that um, summer tour and the papers were really going for him um his wife were Rita was you know out shopping and journalists were following her around the supermarket in the hope that she would linger over the 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 turnips or the swedes you know um that was the kind of stuff that was happening uh there were the same tour you know rita and her at the time very elderly mother were coming back to the house and some journalists were on the doorstep and um they said oh mrs taylor can we have a word about you know about graham and the football and she said oh i don't talk to reporters and the the response was well you better fucking start love i mean you know again that's an anecdote that's come directly from graham it's something that you know 25 odd years later he he still remembers as as uh you know being something that characterized um that era um i have no reason to to doubt that that incident happened but it is obviously uh, you know his his um, his word on that but certainly um the the coverage in the papers he could take the criticism of his decisions he could take uh, he has always said look that only one person picks the team only one person um takes responsibility for the results uh, that is the manager i understand that where he struggled was that that spilled over into his personal and family life and even when he was back 
managing very successfully at Watford. You know, there was the odd incident. He was at Brentford with Watford and somebody came out of a pub with a plastic pint of beer ready to throw it over him. And fortunately, a, a sort of steward who was just working outside the pubs there at uh, Griffin Park, you know, stepped in and managed to jog the guy's arm so the beer didn't go over Graham. But I mean, that was a few years after, you know, sort of 97, 98 sort of time. So five years after he'd left the England job, you know, more on the still, you know, all right, it might be one isolated incident, but, um, you know, that kind of gave the, that tabloid coverage kind of gave the permission to the public to have a word to, to Graham in, uh, you know, when he was out shopping or in, in the yeah. supermarket or what have you. So I think the, the, that lingered long for him and, and that did hurt him undoubtedly. Um, and the, the people who crossed the line, he made it clear that they had, crossed the line and, and and he stood up for himself but he he never did anything it certainly my conversation with him never did anything other than uh, take responsibility for the results and explain his decisions and one thing we haven't talked about from the euro 92 which i suppose we should is again an, another just, decision just a bit like come, leaving just before you come to that point though uh lionel um i, I don't know if you've read uh, stick it up your punter, which was written by Chris Horry and Peter Chippendale, and it's a history of the Sun newspaper. But in lots of ways, it's a history of the tabloid press in in England. And um, the FA could have done a lot worse and give Taylor a copy of of that book because uh, it shows you what you're you're dealing with, uh, mm. led by Kelvin McKenzie. But certainly, it's a it's a a culture which runs deeper than that, and. Um, you know, uh, it does look almost heroically naive not to expect the kind of treatment he got, even if the guys who are on the plane with him going to on these tours that there's always been a close relationship between the football journalists. But he was he was dealing with a a, a culture that was still in its formative stages, but was absolutely clear just how vicious and how. Um, oriented towards uh, a ruthless pursuit of profit, um, uh, how how he really should have known better. I'm, I'm saying, even if well, I don't know. I'm not sure about that because, I mean, Bobby Robson had had some pretty fierce treatment, hadn't he? But, I mean, what was the harshest headline about Robson in the name of God go? I mean, you know, that's that's kind of on the – on. all right, it's harsh, but it's on the right side of the line. Being mocked up as a turnip and, and, and you know, that, that there's something about that that kind of almost – I don't want to over – overdo it here but it kind of dehumanizes doesn't it yes, it does it say yeah. to people you you can do anything here you this yeah. guy's a vegetable i mean that is you know and and when that was being bought by three four million people and read by many more and 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 seen and you know as, as a on the one side as a bit of knockabout fun oh it's only a picture but the un that's why i'm saying the unintended consequence i don't think it's i don't think it's quite fair to say um he should have expected that because i think that does cross a, a line and um yeah on the other side Graham Taylor was not going to let uh, the possibility of, of a hostile press put him off taking what he considered to be the the, the most important and uh, the the job in the country in football that would give him uh, and his family the most pride. I mean, it's the thing he really had been working for uh, since his playing career uh, ended prematurely and, and probably before that when he realised he wasn't going to actually play for England. He thought, well, I, I could still manage England. So um, I think, you know, we can apply a little bit of uh, post-dated context to it uh, and and certainly I think he was prepared for a rough ride if if results didn't go well 
but being mocked up as a turnip, I'm not really sure that you could envision that happening in advance. Yeah. Once that had happened, the kind of the rules changed, didn't they? I, I think. They, yeah. If they, I could, um... I'll just I'll just interject a, just for a moment before I bring you in, Mike, because it, it was an important part of of Taylor's um, experience for England, and I don't think we're we're overdoing this because say it was so critical. I think I agree with almost everything you say, Lionel. But my view, as I say, and and at the time I was reading stuff around the media and the press and the stick up your punter book in particular is, is very good on this, is it did cross a line, but the sun had no line. I mean, it wasn't just the sun, but the sun in particular had no line. There was nothing they, they there was as we, we later saw with things like the phone tapping, there was, there was just nothing they wouldn't do. And I think the naivety is not in, you know, that's a cruel word to use in some ways, but it was not in. Um, it was really in the expectation that there was a line there at all, because I don't think there was. Um, but yeah, he had to deal with them. It's an important part of the of the job. Uh, but I, you know, I I, I think he gave he, his innate decency was was came up against a, a kind of unstoppable force. And you know uh, it, it, what made him so so decent as a person and much beloved, and and the outpouring of uh, of affection for him on his on his uh, untimely death uh, is 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 sort of a testament to that. But it, it didn't serve him well in in dealing with the kind of thing that he had to put up with, not so much from the sports journalists, for, but from the the whole machine of of tabloids and football which was getting into gear sorry i've i've ranted a little bit there but mike you were going to come in uh yeah well it's just to kind of um concur with what you've been saying really i mean i i don't think it's enough to say at all that oh this is what comes with the job and you have to take it and you know ronald's quite right the, the dehumanizing uh, nature of it i mean you, you can laugh off a turnip cartoon if you want and try and say oh it's you know, it's just it's just frivolous and childish. But I think on another occasion there was actually there was a picture of his head with a target superimposed yeah. over the top mm. of it, which is just disgusting. And and you know, I think the the, the people who are behind these decisions, um, you know, the graphic design, the people who work in the office who attach these things to the words of writers, I want no part of it. I mean, it's just, there's just such a lack of respect there for. For those people to the their their own writers, their own staff, yeah. and, and and to the people uh, that they're abusing as well. I mean, you don't have to look back uh, too far um, in in recent history to see what uh, media demonization, you know, what what the some, sometimes horrible consequences of that yeah. um, of that can be. I mean, and this 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 was the kind of formative stages of that. Really, and I think um, it's 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 often credited to Bobby Robson's era, this vicious circulation war, where Bobby Robson became the target. But I I, I agree that I, I think Taylor got it um, an awful lot worse, and it's, um, it's some of the things that were printed about him and uh, uh, the mock-ups. I just think they're absolutely just disgusting. I mean, whatever you think of how someone plays football or the results they get, I don't. I don't think anyone, um, you know, trying to do the best in their job, uh, deserves that. And I, I don't. I just think it's completely unjustifiable. Um, and I, I would hope that 
people who were responsible for that at the time with you know hindsight and wisdom look back on that kind of era now and would rightly be ashamed of themselves i hope well maybe well i'm not too sure about that because i I do i do know that um I do know that Graham was approached when uh, somebody who was pretty closely involved to, with with uh, drawing up that image or the page. I don't know whether it was the person who came up with the headline or whether it was the person who came up with the actual image, but somebody was either retiring or leaving the sun and, and, and a message got to Graham, would you, would you be prepared to, uh, you know, uh, send a, a message um, you know, a farewell message or a happy retirement message, and Graham was like, "Absolutely not." The consequences of that are still with me now. And uh, you know, it's e- it's too easy to say, "Oh, it, it's a joke." Um, but you know, the Graham and his uh, and his management and 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 legal people had to had to tell the son to desist with uh, still referring to him as a turnip. Um, when he came back to club management, because it was it was impinging on his reputation. It was something that he that he wasn't allowed to shrug off until he he forced them to, um, you know, stop doing it. So yeah, I think the the ramifications of it were serious, and um, certainly Graham never forgot, you know, the, the 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 personal impact of that. And Graham's got had a great sense of humour and would you know would would laugh at himself I think that's possibly the thing that that hurt most was that Graham would make jokes about his uh you know about his time as England manager you know I dropped the ball on that one or I you know that was a bit of a cock-up wasn't it but you know he never ever um made a decision I'm I'm pretty sure he never made a decision thinking it was the wrong decision and that's the great irony of uh, and it echoes what you're both saying really um you know the only one person have to carry the can for the results in the end when you're the England manager and uh, he you know the, the can got pretty ke- pretty heavy for him at times didn't it well yeah, he I- did um he did I think he did a television commercial after um he'd finished with England didn't he where um mm. it was based around the um the, the do I not like uh do I not like that quote I think it's do I not like orange it was so I think it was a TV commercial with Bobby Robson and Terry Venables but it did show that you know it, it I, you know, I think it comes across on the documentary we'll come to discuss. You know, he's, you know, he's warm, convivial. He's, he's, you know, and quite funny, uh, wry uh, fellow. So he, you know, he did have a sense of humour about the game and himself, but. Um, you know, and he did write for the Sun on occasions as well. Yeah. And and when I asked him why he did that, he said, "Well, one, I insisted that I had complete control over what I could say, and two, I was taking their money, so I might as well have something out of them." You know, so <laughs> he wasn't without a sense of irony as well. Well, it's well, not it's not just because I speak with the accent that I speak, but I, I really do think there's there's no parlaying with some of the of uh, the people that we're talking about, and um, mm. it's only Taylor's innate decency that uh, that allowed him even to go that far. I think uh, I would have treated them rather less charitably. Uh, but we could moved... I um oh, sorry on. sorry could I just touch on where one one final thing on Euro '92, um so the the Sweden game uh, the final group game. Uh, which England lose uh, and then go out of the tournament. Um, I, I, I think Lionel mentioned it earlier, is that uh, there's one enormous decision in that, uh, which I think hung over Taylor for the rest of his reign. And that was that was substituting Gary Lineker yeah. um, after about an hour in that game. Uh, so Gary Lineker, he'd, he'd been Taylor's uh, captain, or Taylor had appointed him captain um, in the aftermath of Italia 90. 
And going into that tournament, uh, everyone knew Lineker was going to retire at the end of it and then go and uh, see his career out uh, in Japan in the uh, the new J-League with uh, Grampus 8. Uh, and all that time, Lineker was closing in on the, the England goal-scoring record, as we've mentioned, and you know had missed that penalty. And I think there'd been a bit of friction between him and Taylor about you know not starting all of the games in the lead-up because it did become a story uh, whether Lineker could break this goal-scoring record that had stood for over 20 years and belonged to Bobby Charlton. Um, and so when uh, it's, I think it's one all in the game and we'll go on to lose 2-1 uh, when Taylor takes him off, it, it's become now, well, England needed a goal when they, they took off one of their greatest ever goal scorers. But if you watch that game back, uh, Linnick had a really poor game. I mean, you could argue like maybe the way that uh, Graham had set England up to play wasn't getting the best out of um, Lineker, but he, he didn't have a good game and he, I don't think he could complain about being substituted. And there's that kind of heartbreaking image of him walking off, yeah. taking the captain's armband off and then going to sit down. Uh, but no one knew at that point that that would be his last game. And, and you know, England could still have qualified for the semi-finals at that point. So, he may have had another go at it, but it's it's always something that's held against Taylor. I think that he substituted Lineker on, on the brink of um, getting the England goal scorers record, um, and that's it, it's become um, you know. And, and Lineker, Lineker made a, a very big deal out of that on his various television appearances on the, um, they think it's all over and and things like that. But I, I mean, I I back Taylor on that decision completely because Lineker was having a poor game and I don't think he has to take Lineker's feelings or his individual record chasing into account when he's trying to win a game for England. I th- I remember watching that and this is the time where watching in a pub was because post Italia 90 you know pubs were showing football I can't remember whether I saw this match in the in the pub or at home, but I remember seeing it, and I, maybe I was in the pub because I remember, sort of around me, people sort of looking at each other, saying, "What's going on?" But there was two elements to it. The first element you've correctly identified, which is that you know Lineker wasn't having the best of games, and um, you know Thomas Brolin, who we remember as a rather a figure of fun when he was sort of overweight at Leeds, was was pretty damn good up front for mm. Sweden at that time. And I think Martin Darlene was playing alongside, and they were both, I think, first choice strikers either then or very soon would be in in Serie A. So you know there were no mugs up at all, Sweden particularly up front. But it wasn't so much the, the bringing off of Lineker; it was the bringing on of Alan Smith. And I'm sure it was Alan Smith who was the the substitute, and sort of it was. Yeah. You need a goal, and you bring in on Alan Smith, who again kind of fell into that kind of Graham Taylor thing at the time, as that he was like Gordon Cowens, like David Platt. They were very nice blokes who were personable in front of a camera, but there was no sense in which. Alan Smith was a man that you wanted with you in the trenches, even though he's a very creditable centre-forward and played very well for Arsenal and is a fantastic pundit these days. It wasn't like you you know, you know, were you were bringing on a kind of super sub. You were bringing on Alan Smith. And so the yeah. question was not so much, you know, was Lineker having a bad game? Is it who is more likely to score in the last 20 minutes, an out-of-form Gary Lineker or a cold Alan Smith? And 
99 people out of 100 would, I'm sure, say an out-of-form Gary Lineker. And so that's well, what I we think, can understand, I think. Yeah, I, th- I think with that, I mean, it was uh, that was obviously a signal from England that they were going to go more direct in the game. And, and it does come back to, you know, what we talk about with uh, Graham Taylor's philosophy and the way he played football. Um, and Brian Glanville, I saw in an interview once, always said that he felt about Taylor that, he was yearning to kind of play the football that had worked so well for him at Watford, but he he never kind of really quite dared to go the full way with it with England yeah. because, you know, it's the national team and there's, there's certain expectations that come with the uh, the national team. But Alan Smith, you know, was a really good player. He was the, he was the top scoring striker in an Arsenal team that had won yeah. two championships. He was a good option. Um, and... Uh, yeah, yeah, they had. Uh, I think they had Tony Daly on one wing to try and get crosses in for him. So that's that's what uh, Graham Taylor reverted to when it, when he needed to chase that game, and obviously took Lineker off. But I think it, it, the way people talk about that substitution now is that it, it's as if they imply some level of vindictiveness on Taylor that he, that he took he took Lineker off to prevent him getting the record, which is, you know, it's absurd, really. Yeah, these things always well, get that... kind of reinvented, don't they? But yeah. what you're saying is that he was hankering for George Riley or Ross Jenkins. Is that what you're <laughs> To be well, fair, that that game against Sweden was like watching, uh, you know, uh, the mirror image of England trying to play against one another. I mean, let's not pretend that Sweden were some kind of reincarnation of, uh, you know, the, the, the 1970 Brazil side. They were... They were uh, uh, um, you know they were they were a team that got the ball forward and and, and their their forwards were just better than the England forwards, weren't yeah, they? I mean, um, they they were more effective at doing what they were doing than England were. Um, certainly, there was absolutely no malice, as far as I could tell, from talking to Graham about this. And it, and it was a, it was another one that he would return to um, every now and again, talking about the decision to take off Gary Lineker. Um, you have to bear in mind it wasn't just in that game that Lineker hadn't played particularly well. It was he hadn't played particularly well in the tournament. He. He'd scored, not scored, I think, for five England games prior to the Sweden match. So um, it's not like he was a banging form Gary Lineker of sort of Italia 90 or, or Mexico 86. Um, it just wasn't working for Lineker. And again, whatever we think about it um, in hindsight, knowing what happened, you know, with, with 29 minutes of that match to go, Graham Taylor is not thinking of anything other than winning the match, getting through to the semi-final and giving Gary Lineker the opportunity to score in that to break the record. Um, you know, that was that was what was motivating him to make that decision. And I think Alan Smith, um, you know, as much as uh, my my penchant for a big number nine uh, might, might um, uh, you know, go unspoken or... I may not need to um, say too strongly how much I think a good target man can be extremely effective. As you say, Mike, Alan Smith had scored a lot of goals in a very good Arsenal team. And I think probably when we're really unpicking this, the shortcoming really was a nationwide kind of uh, malaise in terms of uh, a lack of ability to really truly vary and and match up against, uh, um, you know, against different types of football. You know, England were kind of stuck in a bit of a rut, weren't they? They were, they were certainly no shortage of effort, but 
a real shortage of kind of um, you know uh, lock pickers or you know someone to really um, mm. cause an opposition side difficulty. And even when the likes of Paul Merson were on or Tony Daly, Merson of course very direct, um, you know very effective. Tony Daly, you know absolutely lightning quick on his uh, on his day. Um, if you can't get the ball to those players, which England clearly couldn't, you you don't you only need to watch ten or fifteen minutes on YouTube to see that. If you can't get the ball to the players who can really hurt the opposition, um, then you know it doesn't really matter who's playing in the centre um, forward positions, does it? And that was that was probably the, the the underlying problem rather than just substituting the captain. But of course, if you substitute the captain and go on to lose the game, it's like holding your it's like handing your critics the uh, the stick and kind of. Uh, inviting them to hit you on the back with it, isn't it? It, it is. Um, so we'll move forward a, a little to the um, qualifying campaign for Euro uh, for World Cup '94, and uh, there were big changes going on in in English football at the time. The uh, the Premier League had uh, started with the the Sky Strikers, who were uh, who welcomed the teams onto the field and a whole new ball game and slick adverts and the, even the shaman at half time belting out Ebenezer Good on the on the pitch. Um, Sky had come had come in obviously. Uh, the subscription service had started. Live football was transformed, but England was still kind of in this. It was a kind of mismatch, really. There was a lot of kind of upmarket optimism and brave new world and all of that going ahead. Where while England was sliding sort of ever further behind the the technicians and and the uh, European players in particular, who were about to join the Premier League but hadn't really joined at that point. So um, there was a sense in which England there was a feeling that England were playing football. 10 years behind its time they were all kind of reverse martin peters and and behind their time instead of being ahead of their time um but uh in start off in that uh campaign for for world cup uh 94 you know there's the the pre uh the pre-qualifying tournament to friendlies and stuff but i mean it, it, crudely put and you know it's not a spoiler here things didn't go well so lionel do you want to take us through uh graham taylor in the uh in the in on the campaign trail to to usa 94 well again um looking at the you know the, the world cup was going to be held in the united states in 94 wasn't it and uh england were drawn in the qualifying group with the netherlands very difficult opponents Poland, who could be tricky, but they've managed to get past them in the Euro 92 qualifying tournament. Uh, Norway, who uh, you, you could have at the time said, well, that, that shouldn't be a problem. Uh, Turkey, likewise, you know, shouldn't be a problem. And San Marino certainly shouldn't be a problem. This was the start of um, the period where the qualification tournaments were getting bigger, weren't they? Because um, the, well, basically the breakdown of the Soviet Union and, uh, and, and the admission of, of a nation or is it a nation like San Marino? It's it, it, it's a uh, it's a principality, really, isn't it? Um, and so you would you would say, okay, England have got a very good chance of, of getting through that group. Um, the first game against Norway at Wembley uh, really the job was done. It was it was uh, you know, it was it wasn't a pretty performance, I don't think. But uh, right towards the end. Um, 
Rectal, a name that would would basically haunt Graham Taylor's entire qualification campaign, uh, struck not necessarily a bolt from the blue, but it it was it was uh, you know it denied England a, a winning start, um, and and really, I think that had they won that game, they they probably would have been just about all right, um, but as we went on, um, you know the the easy ones. Uh, Turkey, San Marino, Turkey again, all, all uh, maximum points. And then the game that, um, that another one that got away, excellent against the Netherlands, and I think 2 0 up and really in control. Yeah. Um, but then the Dutch came back, uh, Bergkamp, and then a penalty uh, from Van Vossen. 2 um, 2 draw and, and had England held on and won that one it's a, it's a campaign of if if buts and maybes isn't it but uh, um, you know more points slip away I think an Ian Wright equaliser um, meant they salvaged a draw in Poland and then the, the unravelling begins in June early June 1993 with a trip to Norway and another performance where uh, England were well they were they were made to look extremely poor by a Norway team that at the time it's easy to look at some of the players that are in that lineup uh, or the goal scorers certainly you know became more familiar to us Leon Hardson and Bohinen um, but we were still in this era weren't we where you thought that England facing Norway uh, well, they'll go there and they'll they'll do the job, but they lost two 0 and it all became about the uh, you know the formation that Graham had selected a, a sort of a, a five at the back with with wing backs really and and people misunderstanding uh, that perhaps and I'm I'm slightly tongue in cheek here but but everyone always says uh, you know Lee Sharp was playing left back well was he he was kind of playing as a sort of wing back I guess yeah. you would you would say um, whether that was really Lee Dixon's strength on the other side I don't know but in it doesn't really matter does it because they lost 2-0 and and suddenly it, it, it was all down to having to get a result in Rotterdam against the Netherlands and well that's the focus of the of the film isn't it the 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 disappointment and to a degree the injustice uh, Ronald Koeman perhaps should have been sent off for a professional foul, pulling down um, uh, David Platt, uh, but stays on the pitch and then scores the free kick at the other end. And uh, from that point on, Eng- England were down and, and pretty much out. And then the denouement in Bologna against San Marino, the final match, um, qualification already out of England's reach. Um, but to go one nil down in literally from the kickoff, I mean, you, you couldn't script that, could you? Um, you know, the 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 San Marino guy uh, gets the wrong side of uh, Stuart Pearce and, and puts San Marino one nil up. And even though England score seven, it's still an embarrassing night and no uh, real alternative for Graham after that. If you don't qualify for the World Cup as an England manager, um, I don't think there's any way you can survive. And, and he tended his resignation and... Uh, undoubtedly the biggest disappointment of his career yeah i think that's a very uh, perceptive and uh, and concise description of what happened i'm going to i'm going to throw one or two things in after but i want to, i want to bring you in mike first uh, yeah so the 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 opening game with uh, norway in the qualifying campaign i mean i think i just think it's so important how you start these things um and England were 1-0 up against the Norway team. And it, it it's a Norway team that I think probably people in England would have been quite dismissive about when they were drawn against them. But at the very back end of Norway's Euro 92 qualifying campaign, 
Uh, they didn't qualify for that tournament, but they finished really strongly. I think they won their final few games, including a really famous win over Italy. Um, so th- there was this sense around them and under Ego Olsen that, that they were a bit of a rising force and that they had that once-in-a-generation uh, set of players that you know countries get now and then that that might be able to take them places. And yeah, Rekdal's Re- goal in that game where he just gets it on the edge of the area and sticks it in the top corner, it's a, it's a wonderful strike. But I just think that's a, such a really pivotal goal um, in that group. But I mean, af- I mean, after that, England did reasonably well after that. They beat... Uh, Turkey at home uh, and they had Gascoigne back from injury at this point he had a brilliant game um, England won 4-0 he scored a couple of goals Alan Shearer scored so Alan Shearer just transferred to Blackburn then from Southampton and it had immediately flourished into this devastating goal scorer that would you know, dominate the first sort of five years of the uh, the Premier League basically uh, Stuart Pearce uh, was uh, now the captain um, after Lineker had retired and then, you know, they beat San Marino. But then the the real deflating moment, I think, is uh, is when they draw 2-2 two, two with the Netherlands at home because they were 2-0 up after, I think, 20 minutes in that game. Uh, Barnes has scored a wonderful free kick in the first couple of minutes. And it's a full Wembley. The atmosphere was fantastic. And they're just up against a really good side. Um and then one moment of absolute magic from Dennis Burkamp starts to turn that game around where he he, he it's a kind of lobbed volley of uh, Chris Woods uh, while he's running at full tilt. It's just, just a, another sensational goal that goes past um, past this England team. And then at the very end, when England concede a penalty with five minutes left, um, Des Walker pulls down Mark Overmars and it's, it's the first of... A series of quite high-profile mistakes by Des Walker um, in this campaign. I mean, Des Walker, who'd been a virtually flawless defender for England for for the previous five years, um, all of a sudden started making these mistakes, and they they lost Shearer to long-term injury. They lost Stuart Pearce, the captain, to long-term injury. So, yeah, these things were conspiring against them. And then, yeah, the, the defeat in uh, in Norway was obviously. A real blow, but they managed to rectify that. They beat Poland at home in uh, September of '93. But in that game, uh, Paul Gascoigne picked up his second booking of the the qualification campaign, which meant he was suspended for the game in Rotterdam, um, which was just a huge, another huge blow and another a huge thing that went against Taylor. And um, yeah, that game in uh, Rotterdam, obviously very. Very seismic, very famous evening. Uh, lots of things have been forgotten about it. I think England they they hit the inside of the post twice, but also I mean the Dutch had a goal disallowed by uh, Frank Rijkaard that should have stood. Um, and then you know yeah you have the whole thing about Koeman being well fouling Platt and under the rules at the time he almost certainly should have been sent off. I don't think it was a penalty because it was just outside the area. And then you have the you know the horrible irony then of you know Koeman going up the other end and uh, scoring and and that that's kind of really where it ended. I mean, you know, people go on to the uh, uh, the Galtieri uh, goal for San Marino because I think they're going to have to win by seven clear goals and they won seven one. But that that's not what stopped them qualifying because as well as needing to win by seven clear goals, they needed uh, Poland to beat Holland um, and they didn't. The Dutch won that game. 
three one and uh yeah that was the end and it was a, yeah i think i think a more difficult group than people remember i think because you know the uh the norwegians were uh just turning into a you know something of a a force for a few years in european football and you had the dutch and there was no uh there was no playoffs then either in the qualifying there was, so there's no safety net and it, it's two teams get through and you know you're either in or you're out but um yeah, I mean, if you just look back at it now, there's uh, there's just those games where England are in the the box seat, the winning position, at home to the Dutch and at home to the uh, Norwegians in the very first game, and uh, they couldn't see those games out to victory, and that's that's ultimately what cost them the place at the World Cup. Yeah, I mean, my my memories of it is that is that Norway, Norway clearly their players weren't as good as ours, but. The manager had a plan. The players were all fit, and the players believed in the manager. And you could never really see that. I mean, arguably, apart from a little bit of, of Venables and a little bit of Bobby Robson, there's there's you know, almost the history of England football is is the manager not really having that much of a plan, and the players not really believing it when he has it. But they was so they were so single minded, the Norwegians that that. And everyone knew their job, and everyone executed it. And um, you know, it, it doesn't matter how limited the players are. If you if you have that, they're going to be difficult to beat. And we've already said that the the kind of lack of creativity in the players available to Graham Taylor made that kind of team even harder to to overcome. Um, I remember watching the 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 Holland game very clearly, and you know, everyone knew that Koeman should have been sent off. This is not kind of sour grapes or managers complaining about a, a 50-50 or a 60-40 or even a 70-30. This was a this was a 99-1. Um it was it, I mean Kuman you can just see looking at him he knows he should be he should be being sent off. He made the decision to foul where he did so it would concede the penalty but uh, he was going to accept the red card take one for the team as they say now. But just astonishingly the referee refuses to send him off and although it's it's kind of tragicomic in some ways watching the documentary where where Taylor is talking to the fourth official and linesman saying you've cost me my job and everything um the way he the way he 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 does it is is the kind of comedy but there is tragedy because you know he, he did cost him his job and it clearly was an error and there was nothing more certain than Kuman was going to put away that free kick at the other end. You know that that's how I was going to say that's how football works. It's how sport works. It's how life works. And particularly with with great players, you don't give them a second chance. And in this case, it wasn't England giving Kuman a second chance. It was it was the referee giving him a second chance. Um, but the you know it, it it was disappointing, and it was probably the the, the last nail in the coffin of. You know, England, we invented this bloody game, mate. We'll show you how to do it. I think, you know, that's the one good thing that came out of that qualifying tournament is I don't think we ever kind of dismissed uh, minnows with quite the disdain that we that we used to. In fact, the, the whole idea of minnows went out of the window uh, as well. So that was a kind of good thing that came of it. And looking back on it, you know, how many times are we going to beat that Dutch side playing in Rotterdam? Um, we're not going to beat them that often. And there's a sense in which... You know, it wasn't the the worst result, wasn't the worst performance in the in, in the in the world because um, they they were a, a damn good side, uh, full of talented players. But it was it was hard to take, and, and sure enough, the 
the tabloids went went after him, um, and yeah, it was untenable to to continue. Um, we we are slightly running out of time. In fact, we, we are definitely running out of time. So um, I just want to come back to you, Lion, and say, have you any more um, to say on on that? And then we'll wrap up quickly with uh, with Taylor's post England career. So anything to add, Lionel? Well, I, I think I talked about the USA tour a little bit earlier, so I won't mention that again. But the, the film is an interesting one, The Impossible Job, um, and the motivations, or the reason mm, that Graham yeah. agreed to do that. Um, he, he really wanted to show what the job entailed. He felt, I mean, you've got to remember, you know, he's the son of a journalist, and, and storytelling is one of, uh, I mean, you know, he, he could talk the, the hind legs off a donkey, as they say. I mean, uh, he, he, did, he did believe in the connection between the the football teams he managed and supporters that was something that that he did at lincoln at uh, watford at aston villa and with england he felt like it, you know he wanted to have a connection with the supporters he he keenly felt the responsibility uh, and the reason that the the nation wanted the england team to be successful um, he understood that on a on a on a level that i don't think we can take for granted everybody necessarily does and I, I think that was a, a genuine um, decision of Graham's to go ahead with a, a documentary uh, in which he would shine a little bit of the light on the decision making on the kind of the loneliness of the job in a lot of ways because I think when all is said and done, when we ask why didn't Graham Taylor replicate his club success at England level, I think it's because um, he, he didn't have the same contact with the players, the same yeah. amount of time on the training pitch, the same opportunity to build a club-type spirit with uh, an international group. And I think the point you made about Norway is an excellent one. If Graham Taylor could have recreated Aston Villa or Watford with the England squad, they would have uh, would have been a lot more successful, perhaps even with all of the injuries and the suspensions and and, and the things that, that seem to get chucked at him um, with sort of an unwelcome regularity. But but the film... Lionel, just, uh, before, as... just before you leave that point, I think I'm right in saying that this was the kind of last or thereabouts tournament without international breaks. So he would would he get the players on a Monday for a match on the Wednesday? That is a very good point. Yeah, um, and and that was a that was something that where he wanted to try and change the culture of that as well. When he, when he took over, um, the players were used to reporting on you know Monday afternoon or Monday evening uh, as and when their clubs said, and and Graham wanted them to report on the Sunday after a Saturday match. But of course, um, you know some clubs were resistant to that. There was there really was very little opportunities to um, get the squad together. And one of the other things about international football and in saying this I'm not making an excuse for Graham Taylor because all the managers have uh, the, the same uh, circumstances to, to manage you're in your squad of 20 or however many it is that you call up, all of them are used to being first-team fixtures and key players for their clubs. You might have a, a club captain sitting on your bench, and every single one of those decisions is a situation to manage yeah. that is more complicated than when you are a club manager. Because as a club manager, you've got much more of a hierarchy that you can say, well, look, you're my, you're my backup central midfielder. You're going to have to wait your turn. England players are all operating at the top uh, of their game with their clubs or, or should be or probably think they are and so 
there's a dent to egos that, that Graham couldn't quite kind of smooth out. on. Every, and because of the type of person he was, he wanted to try and smooth those things out and, and have everybody kind of uh, still rowing in the same direction. I think that's a really, actually a really interesting point. And it, it kind of echoes his situation with the film. Um, it, once he'd made the decision to go ahead with the documentary, as the campaign started to unravel, he was given an opportunity to pull the plug on the documentary. But he asked the film crew, you know, well, what will this mean for you? And, yeah. and they said, well, it will mean everything we've spent on this so far will be down the toilet. And he and he decided to go ahead with it, even though in the end, uh, and he had no kind of, he did see it in advance. He, he had no um, say-so on, on the edit. When you watch the film, you'll notice that certain people really play very small parts in it laurie mcmenary for example is is barely in it i mean just a just a kind of a, a figure on the screen really you don't hear many conversations between the two of them uh, certain players you know aren't involved as much and graham gave everybody a completely free choice as to whether or not they wanted to appear in in the film and and the people who said no weren't didn't make the, the final edit so when people ask well why does it come down to lots of conversation between graham and phil neal yeah. well that's because phil neal was quite happy to be in the film laurie McMenemy wasn't so you only see certain bits of it um so but he wanted to give people people that choice when the film came out uh, i think the the one thing that that he regretted was um the the foul language and we all know you know in the real world we all know that the language of a football club dressing room training pitch on the pitch can be pretty um fruity can't it um but but graham found the reaction from ordinary you know people who perhaps not used to uh, not used to that kind of language. He did find it a little bit embarrassing. I know he stopped going to church shortly afterwards because it's he was he was just a bit embarrassed that the the, the language um, that he used featured so prominently in in the final edit. And um, it's, it was it was interesting to me that that was his kind of main regret about it, rather than any sense that uh, you know his quirky little phrases like "Can we not knock it?" and uh, "Hit les, hit les." I mean, they're almost catchphrases in their own, and to me, they're very. Charming, and but I can also see from somebody else watching, they might they might consider that to be uh, proof or evidence of, of a football manager who really wasn't in in control of uh, you know of, of the situation. Um, personally, I don't I don't feel that. I kind of choose to uh, see it the other way. But um, I can I can see why certain people would pick up on those caricatures and, and extrapolate a broader picture. Lionel, can I just ask? Did he did he see the Mike Bassett film? Because obviously it's a, a... <laughs> parody in some ways and in other ways it's parodies of, of other uh, players but having seen the Mike Bassett film a couple of times and not seen Impossible Job, watching an Impossible Job on Friday, I'm just getting sort of so much of the Mike Bassett stuff com coming through, um, especially in his dealings in the press conferences uh, did he? Did you ever talk about that, or did he not see it? Or do you know? Did he not I, like I, that? I, I, I wish I'd had the foresight to ask that question. It's a great question. I, I don't know. Is the honest answer? Um, um, and I, I mean, completely. I completely get that. Um, that that you would you would watch one and the other and, and assume that the Mike Bassett film is, is based on um, on the Impossible Job. Uh, you know, to the best of my knowledge, Graham never accidentally called up Benson and Hedges. <laughs> because he'd written his team squad on a cigarette packet. 
Um, but it, I mean, that was a. But again, you know, that film has, has entered the kind of the the lexicon of, of, of football, hasn't it? it? Even though it's now you know twenty five years ago, is it? Yes, it is. And uh, you, the Mike Bassett film. Um, Again, there's there's a kind of an affectionate parody of of, of what a difficult job it is to do uh, when the England job goes bad. It goes really bad, doesn't it? I mean, the Wally with the Broly. Um, you know, the, every manager has had problems, haven't they, at, at some point? And and those little motifs, whether it's Big Sam and his massive wine glass, um, or uh, you, you know, the Wally with the Broly, or, or Graham Taylor saying, "Can we not knock it?" Um, these things are so easy to 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 remember, aren't they? And I, I, I think my favourite one of all of those is um, is a, there was a picture of Sven Joran Eriksson with uh, Ulrika Johnson and they on front of Private Eye, and they've both got the same speech bubble coming out, and they're both saying, "Why do I always pick the wrong men?" <laughs> yeah, as you say, every manager's got their own little uh, little motif there. Um, just as a little aside. I, I was uh, when I was an academic manager. Um, our uh, MA in screenwriting, the external examiner, was one of the writers for Mike Bassett, and I only found this out right at the end of a kind of three-hour meeting. I wanted to ask him all kinds of questions, but he had to get off, and I didn't have the chance to do so. But <laughs> fancy finding that out, sort of 179 <laughs> minutes into a 180 minutes uh, meeting. Speaking of 180 minutes, we're up at 90 at the moment, so I do want to wrap things up. But I am going to go to you, Mike, if you have anything to add specifically about uh, about uh, USA 94 qualifying and its aftermath well I'll just touch on the uh, the documentary um, uh, quickly is that uh, it opens with this you know the, the famous um, Bill Shankly quote about you know football life and death is the, the one that's always um, misinterpreted yeah, and uh, hey, hey, yeah well, just hey. about the just about the um uh yeah the documentary i think it, it's remembered now for you know do i not like that can we not knock it the, the phil neal stuff um you know as lionel says all of these things have entered the the football lexicon and they've become the basis for all these you know banter based podcasts and these uh, <laughs> you know these bbc3 um you know, uh, guffawing retrospectives about uh, Here's Jimmy Carr. football. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, but actually, I think within that documentary, there's 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 a lot more interesting things going on than what than what people actually take away from it. And I thought this one, I saw the the Crazy Gang documentary as well about Wimbledon winning the FA Cup. I mean, that the thing that resonates out of that is this these kind of cartoon tough guy talking head appearances from you know Vinnie Jones and. John Fashionu, but within it, there's really interesting things from you know, like Dennis Wise and John Scales about how Wimbledon gave them a chance when you know they had nowhere else to go in their career, and how they worked with Don Howe and how he set them up tactically. And I just think if you look at um, uh, the the Impossible Job, the documentary, I just think there's some there's really interesting things in there about pressure. I mean, uh, you know, he makes references to you know Graham Taylor waking up with his clothes soaked in sweat, um, and you can see those sides of it getting to him. He's, he's in that bear pit of a press conference with all the journalists um, in Rotterdam. And at the very end of the film, it cuts to Rob Shepard basically um, writing uh, or 
transcribing over the phone to his editor like the end of Taylor's career and it's almost like that's Rob Shepard's one because um, you know Graham Taylor made a, made a bit of a fool out of him in one of the press conferences um, and the things I mentioned before as well about um, Gascoigne he, make, he makes quite pointed references in it Taylor about uh, how Gascoigne refuels himself after yeah. games and there's a there's a, I think after the San Marino game he says to Laurie McMenemy Gascoigne in my opinion is not happy and I think during Gazamania and you know the height of Gaza's career after Italia 90 I think a lot of people turned a blind eye to what was going on with Gascoigne they just they kind of left him well he just let him do what he wants drink what he wants you know as long as he's playing great football you know, we won't disturb him. But to me in that documentary, Taylor, Taylor just seems to have an awareness and a concern for Gascoigne that I've always found really, really touching. And, you know, really, um, you know, there's a, there's a level of concern that maybe maybe he could have done with other other points in, in, in his career as well. And all these things that they're kind of woven into the documentary and, and you see like little brief glimpses of them but um, yeah, they're, they're they're just not the things that people remember. And when you see, uh, when whenever people use clips of it now for various uh, programs about f- football, you know, it it is the kind of lampooning stuff that gets that gets pulled out. But I, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff in there as well about English football at the time, what was going on with Gascoigne, and, and and yeah, simply simply the pressures of that job. Um, yeah, I just I just think um, re rewatching it now. And, and watching it at a distance, you can you can definitely see that it's a, it's a time when, kind of in a wider context, kind of masculinity was being rethought, um, and what it was to be strong and what it was to be weak were being re- rethought. It was it was early days in in some ways, and a lot of the caricatures were were there, and a, a lot of people. I mean, I remember seeing Gascoigne on Thank God It's Friday and people were laughing and saying, oh, is Gaza playing the fool? And I remember looking at it and thinking, you know, this isn't good. This this isn't right. We shouldn't really even be watching this. There was George Best on Wogan and stuff like this around around that time. And I think Taylor was, was quite... Um, uh, enlightened in in understanding that that change was was coming, and I think we we see that in the in the film. I was particularly impressed or touched, um, whatever the right uh, verb is, when he went off to see David Platt to tell him that he was going to give the captaincy to Stuart Pearce. And I think you know, in in lots of ways, there's too much made of the uh, England captaincy and, and we, we see Platt taking it very well and then both having a, a smile and it's it's quite a, a touching scene. But he didn't need to do that. He didn't know what reception he would get and there are certainly other players, I'm sure, who, who would have taken it differently. Of course, he knew David Platt from his, the Villa dressing room, but it was still it was still the right thing to do. And, you know, it's... Um, the older one gets, the the more one looks on the right thing to do, and and one sees that not everybody does it, and you find times when you haven't done it yourself either. And so when you see someone doing the right thing, you 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 know you metaphorically doff your hat to him. And you know I I particularly enjoyed um, the scene in the car when he's driving to Seville. I think it is he's playing for Sampdoria or, uh, in a pre-season tournament. 
and he's saying, you know, I'm, I'm giving it to Stuart, but I felt it was important to come out and speak to David personally mm. to, to have that. And I thought, good on you. You know, that's a decent thing to do. It's always nice to get one, uh, us, but, you know. Um, yeah. Sorry, Gary, if I could just uh, jump in with one thing. Yeah. One great example of what, what you say there is, um, I, f- I forget which game it is, but it's a game at Wembley, and uh, there's a supporter over the shoulder of Taylor I mean, you can't pick up yeah. what's said, but obviously yeah. says something just horrendous about John Barnes. And there was plenty And Taylor it. turns around to confront him, and uh, Laurie McManamy actually tries to stop him and just says, leave it, don't get involved. Uh, but Taylor won't have it, and he, he rebukes the guy. You know, you're talking about another human being, so just watch your your language. And, you know, the abuse John Barnes suffered in that kind of era, um, you know, a lot of it was glossed over. And, you know, Taylor confronted that, and you see... You see Lots of that through the film. He's, he's obviously a he's just a really, really dignified man. I mean, and I, I, the way he handled things like that, he's got a very clear sense of, uh, you know, right and wrong, and he's, he's a very strong-minded man. And, okay, England, you know, didn't qualify for the World Cup, and, uh, you know, and, and he, he, he'll be remembered for that, and he'll be remembered for that out of the documentary. But I, I do think in that documentary you get, you get a portrait of... Um, you know, just a really, just thoroughly decent human being. Yeah, I think. That's uh, just on that, line just up. sorry, just on that. I mean, the um, Graham had dealt with um, the, 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 you know, the situation of racism in football when, uh, you know, through the eighties, and and you got to remember. Graham Taylor was one of the architects of kind of the the family club uh, atmosphere at Watford at a time when lot of clubs were putting up um, fences. Uh, Watford didn't have any fences at Vicarage Road and in fact uh, created a, a, a junior terrace, you know, a family terrace where kids could stand at the front without adults in front of them and the adults had to stand behind a, a, a yellow line painted halfway up the terrace. And uh, certainly throughout the whole of his career, if people wrote to him as manager of the football club with, you know, either praise or criticism or whatever he would he would write back to almost everyone that contacted him that was the or he'd pick up the telephone if somebody put a phone number on on their letter and, and he'd and he'd ring them um and i think he found with the england job uh, there wasn't so much of that contact and so he didn't he felt like he was kind of almost managing in the dark a bit sometimes there wasn't the same hands-on-ness not just with the players but also w- with the supporters and so uh, I think it, you're absolutely right in what you say Mike about, uh, you know Graham was a, a uh, you know a, a very decent man who had a real sense of um, you know how people ticked um, and and his concern was genuine I mean I was working with him on on his book at the time when Paul Gascoigne was back in the uh, newspapers the, the bizarre situation with Raoul Raoul Moat if you remember that oh, um, yes. and and, yeah. and and Paul Gascoigne clearly was struggling and the tabloids were again intruding where they probably shouldn't have been and Graham's concern was you know we we lost kind of half a morning on 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 the book uh, although of course we didn't because the stuff he was telling me about Gascoigne was 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 informing me all the time um, but it, it was a genuine you know I wish he was he would say I wished I'd I wish I'd been able to sort of penetrate because mm. with Gascoigne's personality there was clearly a, a, a sensitive vulnerable person um at, at the heart uh and, and sometimes not even at the heart you know Gascoigne was was vulnerable and sensitive on the outside as well and uh I, th- I think you're right Mike bits of that definitely come across in the documentary but of course just got kind of lost in the lost in the noise if you like 
Mm. Well, I, I, I'll skate over, if I may, um, his managerial appointments after uh, England because, um, you know, they were after England in, in lots of ways. I think he was at Wolves and went back to Villa. But um, many of our younger listeners will know Graham Taylor, perhaps mainly through his, his work with Five Live, where all of that sort of decency and uh, sense of humour and ability not to take himself too seriously came to to the fore and um, he, he appeared to be much loved by a very different set of journalists who were working for the BBC and uh, around the, the BBC at the time and he was a very much respected uh, co-commentator uh, summariser who you know had a penetrating insight into football and a, a very clear and um, uh, successful way of communicating that I mean how did he find his his work in the in the media line he really enjoyed it. I mean, uh, I think just to go back to the after the immediate aftermath of, of him uh, resigning as England manager, um, of course, the World Cup in 94 went ahead without him and without England. Uh, Graham was already back in work at Wolves uh, in March 94. So, uh, what, two and a half months before the World Cup started in, in the United States. And I think even then, one of the things that uh, kind of one of the things that he missed was that he wasn't part of um, the World Cup in any sense. He wasn't... Uh, in 1990, he'd been writing a column for, I think, the Times newspaper. Um, it might have been the Telegraph. I'm sorry if I've got the, the wrong paper. But he was out in Italy um, watching games, writing his, his pieces himself. Not, you know, in those days, he was he, they weren't ghosted for him. Um, so in 94, he, he, he was completely on the outside of a World Cup that, let's not forget, he'd spent two and a bit years planning for and had been to the USA for the, the ill-fated USA Cup in the summer of 93. Um, and I asked Graham what he did when the World Cup was on. And I, I kind of half expected him to say, oh, we took ourselves away to the other side of the world, maybe the Caribbean or somewhere where uh, football's not quite so uh, wall-to-wall, although perhaps it, perhaps it might be. Um, but uh, no, he stayed at home and, and pretty much tortured himself by watching every yeah. single game at yeah home on his own on TV and he just left me with a portrait of how he dealt with it which was to watch the games on his own and then uh, go out into the garden at his home and just kind of roll a football around and tap a football around on his lawn uh, just thinking about you know, the, the and, it, and that was part of the kind of rehabilitation process. Uh, he he felt that he kind of slept, walked through a couple of months with Wolves um, from sort of March to the end of the season, and then of course they, uh, you know, they, they he got stuck in and and they missed out in the playoffs. But um, the media was hugely important to him. He always enjoyed giving his opinion. Um, he enjoyed listening to other people's opinions as well. But he always remembered that uh, at the end of the day, his opinion counted a lot less. And than that of players who are actually, uh, you know, in the heat of uh, the moment on the pitch. And certainly he had a lot of respect for managers. And if you listen to a lot of his commentary, his criticism would always be, uh, that, you know, that one step removed. It would have that layer of understanding. He, he could sort of criticise a team or an individual for something, but he would do so with the knowledge that, you know, it's not always as easy as it looks from the terraces. No, he had that feeling of kind of the best kind of supportive teacher in that they would, when you get your work back, they would tell you how it is, but you came away not feeling diminished as a result, but uplifted as a result, even though they were telling you where you went wrong. I think that that, uh, that's a, a gift that 
that is natural at least as much as it's learned and you know i think that's definitely so uh, mike i want to um just have something from you and then we will wrap things up uh, yeah I'll, I'll just finish i suppose on um you know the 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 end of his uh club career when he went back to Watford i mean they always say don't they you'll never go back um and you know often it doesn't work out well if you do but he went back to Watford. I think he got two promotions in successive seasons and took them back into the Premier League. Is that right, Lionel? Have I got that? That is that is right. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty good. There. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I just wanted to. Say, I think yeah, end of the nineties, wasn't it? Um, and he's obviously very revered there. So he, he, yeah, fantastic club manager. All right, didn't it didn't quite work out with him. Um, in the England job, but uh, yeah, he, he shouldn't be remembered and defined uh, by the England job, uh, or as a man who couldn't inspire players or anything like that. Um, and one thing I would end on is that from the very end of that documentary is there's a speech he gives before the players go out uh, to play in Rotterdam, uh, which is about you know if you if you go and find the documentary online. It's about, you know, taking opportunities and, you know, seizing the day. And it's just, it's absolutely spellbinding. Um, it, re- it really is. Um, oh, he, and- we, we reproduce that speech at the, at the end of the book. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it's in Graham's autobiography. Um, and you're absolutely right. It, it's the kind of, it's, it's the hairs on the back of the neck type of uh of moment and when when you hear him actually delivering it in the dressing room with a kind of a a a, a coolness really in a sort of just a, a again seeking to make a connection with with the players that are about to go out and do something that uh you know only only 11 people in the country have got the opportunity to go and to go and do and of course with the hindsight and the knowledge that it didn't work out, it's even more poignant for that, I think. Mm, um, but when we were talking about, you know, how to conclude the book, knowing that, uh, you know, Graham hadn't, we hadn't quite got there um, because he, he, he died just before it would, we'd kind of, we'd finished writing it when we were talking, what, what should we, what should we do? And I, I just thought, well, I'll transcribe it and send it to, to Rita and to, to Graham's very long time agent and just see, see what they think. And, and thankfully they, they gave the sums up and, and, we ended on that note because it does it says something about life as well as about football i think and if you if you're looking for further material um then uh lionel's book i'm sure you'll be able to find it lots of uh, online booksellers and indeed in bookshops once we're allowed out to bookshops um lionel uh obviously lionel burney is the ghost writer graham taylor's uh, autobiography what's the actual book called so people can look this up it's called uh, in his own words Graham Taylor, The Autobiography. So there we are. In his own words, Graham Taylor, The Autobiography. So uh, we will wrap at that point, if I, if I may. So it's only uh, up to me to say uh, thank you very much to Mike Gibbons. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, guys. And thanks to Lionel Burney. Thanks, Lionel. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure, guys. Thank you. And most of all, thanks to you, our listeners. Are we all in here now? Okay, just 30 seconds now. In life, there's so many opportunities and they're always roundabout. There's too many people in life that never see them. And then there are those people who see the opportunities and they don't want to grasp it. And then there's the other people that generally are life's winners. They see the opportunities, they go looking for them, and when they see them, they grasp them. 
And that's what you're facing now on the football field, isn't it? Go fucking take the opportunity, it's there for you, and wring every little bit out of it, okay? Oh, 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 o